Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. listening to Brave New Planet, a podcast about amazing new technologies that could dramatically improve our world, or if we don't make wise choices, could leave us a lot worse off. Utopia or dystopia? It's up to us. On Saturday, November 7th, 2020, hundreds of millions of people finally got an answer to a question that had consumed them for more than eight weeks of balloting and four days of vote counting. Who would lead the United States of America for the next four years? At 11.24 a.m. Eastern Time, CNN called the presidential election for Joe Biden and his running mate, Kamala Harris. Within 20 minutes, every major network followed suit. The race was over. But even as one question was answered, another still loomed large. Will America now finally be able to move forward and tackle the hard problems facing the country and the world? My name is Eric Lander. 
and I'm the host of Brave New Planet. When we began planning the seven episodes of Brave New Planet more than a year ago, I never imagined we'd be wrapping up in the days just after a presidential election. We'd originally planned to complete and release this series in spring 2020. But as with so many things, those plans were upended by the pandemic. Somehow, though, the timings turned out to be fitting. Brave New Planet's about amazing science and technology that also poses hard challenges. But it's also about how we're going to need to come together and work together to make wise choices in many areas. Yes, scientific problems from the current pandemic to climate change, but also societal problems from economic security to racial justice. Brave New Planet has tried to show smart, thoughtful, passionate people who agree on the facts and even agree on the societal goals, but who disagree on solutions. Yet nonetheless, they grapple with complex problems, argue with respect, occasionally even change their minds, and make some progress even where there are no easy answers. To my mind, it's the only path forward. Brave New Planet's mission is to invite everyone into these conversations. So, today's big question. What's it going to take to do more of this as a society? To find common ground on goals and argue productively about solutions? As I thought about this question, it occurred to me that scientists aren't the only people who spend their days gathering information to try to help society solve problems. Journalists do too. So I thought that a conversation between a scientist and a journalist about the common challenges we face might be enlightening. I reached out to journalist Nyla Boudou. Nyla's worked for Reuters, the Miami Herald, and in public radio where she's hosted shows on WBEZ Chicago. Now she's the host of Axios Today, a new daily morning news podcast. Nyla Boudou, welcome to Brave New Planet. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. So, Nyla, I'd love to start with how scientists and journalists connect with the public. At least in science, I think there's often a real problem with humility and trust. You know, for example, when scientists talk about what do we have to do to make progress on problems, one of the first things people suggest is more science education. That don't get me wrong. I'm not opposed to more science education. I teach. I, I love it. But I think there's an underlying assumption there that the problem is that people are just ignorant, that if they just got more science education, they'd know the facts or accept the facts and fall in line with the solutions. And I don't think that's the right place to start. I mean, scientists do spend their days swimming around in facts. But I don't think that's a reason to be looking down on people. I don't think there's ever a reason to be looking down on people. It's not a good posture. We might have been able to get away with it in the, the science of the 1950s and 60s, you know, the authority of scientists in the, the white lab coat or something. But scientists don't have a monopoly on the insights that are going to matter. I think, you know, we have to go in feeling we got something really important to contribute. But it's only part of the puzzle. Yeah, I'm wondering, Nyla, do you see that same issue in journalism? 
Well, I think it's the same thing you said, right? Like, so you said that, you know, the idea that scientists in the 1950s or 60s or whatever, there's this idea that scientists were sort of the end all be all of information. Journalists were like that, too. Right. We used to think that we were in charge of broadcasting out the information to people. And I think certainly in my career as a journalist, we've seen that shift with the advent of social media, the way that information flows. Journalists play a role. I think journalists play a very important role in moderating, in sifting through, in amplifying voices that don't have an opportunity to do that. But we are not the source of, I mean, we do not broadcast information out to people anymore. And I think when you talk about trust, which is a really important thing that comes up in journalism. Do people trust what we do? I think a major reason why a lot of people don't trust what journalists do is because of the way that we go about doing it. And I think not having a humble attitude. Now, I will say, when you look at the data about this, people don't trust the media. And first of all, I will start with the premise. I'm not quite sure what the media is. So I always say that first. Like, that's kind of my first phrase to everyone is, what is this media? I'm not sure what you mean. And when you break it down, I think people who have relationships, for example, with local journalists, um, those institutions score very high. People trust those uh, local institutions, local journalists as accurate, incredible sources of information. I think when you look at the national level, that's where you see more of a breakdown. What do you think about that question of trust? I wonder how important that is as well when we're thinking about journalism and, in your case, science. Oh, boy. So, look, trust, I think, is the next layer up over humility. You got to come in with a humble attitude. But what do we mean by trust the scientists? There's maybe two kinds of trust that are worth distinguishing between. This kind of blind trust, that 1950s, 1960s thing of just defer to me as the scientist because I know better than you. I think there's actually instead a different kind of trust, and I might call it like earned trust. The earned trust is I'm going to be, if I'm the scientist or the doctor, I'm going to be transparent about the evidence we have. I'll tell you why I believe things. And every bit is important. I'm going to be transparent about what we don't know. I don't trust people who don't say I don't know some of the time. I don't trust people who can't explain to me why they believe the things they believe. So I think we are shifting, and maybe it's true for journalism as well, but certainly in science, to the idea that people should be asking questions. They should be probing. And if scientists should bring doubt about other people's results and evidence, why shouldn't the general public bring doubt? But again, it's worth distinguishing two kinds of doubt. There's kind of the cynical doubt. I just don't trust this science stuff. You know, the diet studies keep contradicting each other. Well, you can't trust science because they can't make up their minds. And I think that's a very cynical, nihilistic kind of doubt. I think there's a kind of doubt that I would love to see more of, which is empowered doubt. I'm not going to believe you until you give me the evidence. Show me hard evidence. So that's the kind of empowered doubt that you know, we want to have because that gets people like properly at the table as peers in this thing. I fantasize about, you know, how the FDA might go through its drug approval process for coronavirus vaccines. Just this week, Pfizer issued a press release saying it had 
really positive results from its vaccine trial. And the press release didn't have a lot of details, which, you know, some people noted, and they're going to have to come forward with those details. But I'm imagining, how do we get the country involved in the drug approval process? And so you could imagine like a, a Reddit AMA where, you know, the country's sending in questions and folks at the other side, maybe both the drug company and, and the FDA are trying to answer them. And now, I don't, I don't know all the facts. So I'll just make this up. So don't, don't take these numbers to be exactly right. But it might go something like this. The company starts by saying, well, we ran a clinical trial with 40,000 people and uh, half got the vaccine and half got a placebo. And then we waited until 95 people had gotten infected and, and shown symptoms. And we looked and we found that 90 out of those 95 people were people who got the placebo. And only five of them were people who got the vaccine. And so it looks like the vaccine is doing a pretty good job of protecting people. But then people will, will write in, they'll say, OK, well, tell me, what do you know about elderly people, people over 70? Do they get protection? What about men? What about people who have uh, serious health complications? How long is this protection going to last? And are there side effects? Some of the times, the answers are going to be, we just don't know. We haven't got enough data yet. We haven't run long enough to, to see how long protection might last. I think people are smart and they can take the information, what we know and what we don't know, and make decisions based on that. So I think that's really the foundation of trust, earned trust, is to be direct and transparent about what we know and what we don't know. Yeah. So do you think the credibility then you sort of build the credibility and trust with the government regulator and having, for example, the CDC or the FDA be incredibly transparent about the whole process? Well, the government is here to represent the people and it's got to do that job in a way that actually works. Given the tensions around all these things and skepticism that, that has occurred and, and conflicts, I think the more transparent we can be, the more that we earn trust. So I think transparency is one thing, but then also the actual message and the knowledge. Because I think oftentimes we tend to see this as a binary choice of it either has to be simple or, and easy to understand or it's we're going to get the full information and it's complex. This is inherently the problem, I think, with science communication. And this is something as a journalist we struggle with. How do you distill something down into a way, in my case, that someone is just hearing it? So they're not even going to read it. They just hear it. How much can they really take in at that point? Well, it's interesting. I think Axios talks about sort of smart brevity. Yeah, that's a that thing. <laughs> so... I think communication is a really important thing. And in general, science has not mastered the art of communication. Putting things in such complete detail that they're incomprehensible is not very helpful. I don't know how often you take the package insert out of a drug and read that, that big, thin piece of paper when you unfold it and look at all of the background data on this drug. But I, I bet, you know, maybe that's as often as you read the click license on a piece of software. These actually, things... you know what I was going to say? My mother's a pharmacist, so I just ask her. And actually, that oh. I think is the key, right? I ask someone who I know has the knowledge and I trust. And ah, I think she okay. will distill it down for me. <laughs> 
So your mother plays the role of good scientific communication and good journalistic communication. And the problem is most people don't have your mother. And so how do we manage to get things clear without pulling the wool over anybody's eyes, without oversimplifying? Albert Einstein famously said, and it's one of the things I quote very often, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. Finding that happy medium of saying there is nothing about this vaccine approval or many other things that can't be explained clearly without oversimplifying. I think communicating with honesty and clarity is the heart of it. And I'll say the one leg up I feel like I have is at MIT, I teach freshmen. Freshmen hold your feet to the fire. They want to know, but they want it clearly. And so I think this is something we all have to aspire to if we're going to get a country that's involved in making wise decisions, whether journalistically or scientifically. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern. And this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. So, Nyla, let's turn to this question of bringing people together. Many people feel like they just want to give up on the prospect of bringing people together. Everybody's in their tribes. 
okay, maybe, but it, it, this isn't going to work in the long run. So how do we find common ground or at least find meeting ground where we can meet and talk with each other? Because I do think most people deep down do want the same things. They want their family to be secure. Uh, they would like to have a, a healthy planet, you know, a healthier life for themselves, more peace. I was struck in the election coverage that there were instances where people tried not to go head on saying, I want to convince you to vote for my candidate, but instead to ask What's bothering you? What's on your mind? What are you worried about by listening and, and establishing what are common goals? One may be able to circle back and say, OK, if that's the goal, what are the ways we might get there? Now, I realize I may seem like a hopeless optimist here, and it's not like I'm I'm unrealistic about it. It's just I don't see anything else that works other than trying to to find that kind of meeting ground amongst people. And any kind of change has to start by finding something that's shared. So I don't know what your experiences have been with this. I think that what I have found as a journalist, and this kind of goes back again to communication, but I think it also goes back to this idea of humility is language is really important here because I think that the way that you frame something tells people how to think about something. So, for example, as a journalist, when I am interviewing someone, I always ask them a question, which seems like a very simple thing. But actually, if you listen to a lot of journalists when they're interviewing people, they don't ask them questions. They make statements or they say, tell me about something. Well, if you tell someone to tell you about something, they're going to tell you about something. Oh, that is so interesting because I hadn't actually processed it before that tell me about something is not really asking a question. And so this is my pet peeve as a broadcast journalist and as a host that you should never say tell me about something to someone. You should because you can always ask it as a question because I actually think our brains hear that differently and they process that differently. And I think that's just one example of how language can be so important when we're thinking about and this is of course we parse every word. You know, as journalists and as a broadcast journalist and on our podcast, it is not live. And so we literally do parse every word. And I wonder for you how you've seen language is important to you, especially as you think about Brave New Planet, right? And we think about like you have this idea. I wanted to ask you like this whole idea of like stewards of the Brave New Planet. That's an interesting choice of word that you have, stewards. It's a very deliberate one. Stewards of the Brave New Planet was chosen very intentionally. I think across the political spectrum, from religious conservatives to very progressive people, there is some shared sense of stewardship. In Western religion, the idea that people are stewards of the planet, um, you know, that's fundamental and biblical. We all feel like we have an obligation to be and want to be stewards of this planet. And so it, it dawned on me one day that this was a word that we, we didn't have to argue about. And if we have the common mission of being stewards, we can now have a serious discussion about how can we be the best stewards. But we start by being on the same side. And so... Let's be optimistic and say that we have established a common ground. 
and that we're working on building trust. We've been talking about the pandemic. We've had you've had some really practical solutions for that. I because I remain I would say as a journalist, I am an optimist, but I'm always a skeptical journalist and I remain very concerned about our ability as a country to unite around the science of the pandemic. I, I share your concern. Um, we all should be very concerned about it and therefore work hard to try to overcome it. But then when we think about other issues that are just as big, arguably bigger, like climate change, I wonder how, how do we do that? Well, I think that's a great example to think about climate change. We went through a long period of time when the argument was, is climate changing? I think we've largely moved past that. The question now is, what do we do about it? What worries me is how many people feel overwhelmed, pessimistic, that there's no prospect of doing anything without wrecking the economy and dramatically changing daily life, you know, banning hamburgers and airplanes. I think it's provoked many people across the, the whole political spectrum to just throw up their hands. I think it's terrible. We don't want people to feel fatalistic and pessimistic and overwhelmed. You know, the ultimate answer to climate change is actually pretty straightforward. The only thing that'll work in the long run is to make renewable energy that's cheaper than fossil fuels. The minute that happens, the market will move to renewables on its own. So the answer has to be innovation. It's just, how do you get that innovation? Now, we've already seen a lot of progress. The cost of solar energy and wind energy has been dropping dramatically. In some places, that's cheaper than burning oil. Now, we still need a lot more, better battery storage and better electrification, but there's every reason to think we can do it. So the national goal ought to be for America to lead the world in inventing and producing and selling new energy technologies. And, you know, that way, addressing climate change and promoting economic growth don't have to really be in conflict. There's actually a great historical example. One of the reasons America became the leader in semiconductors and computers is that the government created huge incentives for the semiconductor industry way back in the 1950s. The military bought huge quantities of semiconductors, even when they were too expensive to be commercially viable. They called it pump priming. So on climate change, I think we have our incentives completely backward right now. And I think most Americans could get together around the idea of using incentives to unleash American innovation. How much do you think that inertia, for lack of a better word, whether we're thinking of big things like changes in technology and innovation with climate change, but I'm also really thinking more on the individual level about people feeling overwhelmed and pessimistic and sort of resigned. How much of that do you think results from the way that we communicate. And by that, I'm talking primarily about social media. I think that's a significant issue. Looking back, there was a time that I think most Americans thought America could do anything it put its mind to. I don't think people feel that as much as they should. But there was a sense not that long ago that we could tackle any challenge. I don't think the kinds of wars that people get into over social media and, and takedowns, I don't think they're really conducive to letting people have big aspirations. I think there are amazing things we can get done. Look at what's gotten done over the last 50 years. Everything that's that's been able to be transformed 
we can still do that because I see this as something where people on the left and people on the right both know that that's true. And they, you know, some may come from a market orientation. Some may come from, from a research orientation. But we know we've pulled things like this off in the past. And so I'd like to reorient the discussion. So on that note, how, if we're thinking about the stewards who are listening, what what is your final uh, advice or tips for them? Do something. Doesn't matter what. Go make a curriculum for schools on some topic that you care about or or that we talked about in the program. Go organize a discussion. Go talk to, you know, a local legislator about it. I think the key is to start. The, the point is, if you feel pessimistic, if you feel overwhelmed, if you feel paralyzed, that's terrible. Do something. Something will lead to something else. Now, no one person changes the whole world, but together, changing our attitude that we can make change, that is really important. It's the basis of science. When people set out to try to cure cancer, they say, oh my God, that goal is so huge. How am I going to do it? And yet scientists, step by step, they take a piece of the problem and they make progress against it. And so we go from the 1970s, when nobody had a clue what cancer was about, to people understanding, oh, cancer is caused by genetic mutations, and then discovering, oh, sometimes we can make drugs that block the effects of those mutations. Oh, we can harness the immune system to make therapies. You know, any given week, any given month, you might feel pessimistic because you don't really see progress. But if you step back and look over the course of a decade or two, it's breathtaking how much progress can happen. I think science and society are pretty similar in this regard. You can take on huge challenges, and if enough people are moving that forward, well, we end up making a big difference. Well, thank you. I'm glad that we found common ground, and I appreciate so much that you uh, were willing to sit down and talk to me about all of these things. It's an honor. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you, Nyla. It's been great to talk. And to all the listeners out there, I hope you'll check out Nyla's podcast, Axios Today. So there you have it, stewards of the brave new planet. It really is time to choose our future. There are so many amazing opportunities ahead and so many challenges to getting this right. We can't just throw up our hands and leave it to others to decide. We, all of us, have responsibility to make sure that we make wise choices. It's going to take a lot. It's going to take a commitment to renewing the compact between science and society and to following the evidence. It's going to take humility. Science is an amazingly powerful way to create new possibilities. But we also have to ask, what could possibly go wrong? It's going to take trust and doubt. Not blind trust, not cynical doubt. It's going to take earned trust and empowered doubt where anyone can raise questions and we're all transparent about what we know and what we don't know. And it's going to take engagement from everyone. Government, universities, scientific institutes, corporations, unions, faith groups, student organizations, NGOs, all willing to debate in good faith 
about hard questions. I'm an optimist, but a realistic optimist. It's going to take a lot of work. But what's the alternative? And getting this right has great rewards. I'm committed, and I hope you are too. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Utopia or dystopia? It really is up to us. Thank you for listening. Brave New Planet is a co-production of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, Pushkin Industries, and the Boston Globe, with support from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Our show is produced by Rebecca Lee Douglas with Mary Dew. Theme song composed by Ned Porter. Mastering and sound design by James Garver. Fact-checking by Joseph Fridman, Anna Stitt, and Ian Chant. Special thanks to Christine Heenan and Rachel Roberts at Clarendon Communications, to Lee McGuire, Kristen Zarelli, and Justine Levin-Allerhand at The Broad, to Mia Lobel and Heather Fain at Pushkin, and to Eli and Edie Broad, who made The Broad Institute possible. This is Brave New Planet. I'm Eric Lander. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.